1: a room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using WatsonX, and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create.
2: What you learn as a creative person, I think, is very analog or very uh, parallel to what you learn in life is that while you're losing hope and faith and, and, and stuff in one way because you've seen that the world is not as beautiful and marvelous in many ways that you expect, you also grow muscles along the way to cope with it. And if that balance is okay in your life, you'll survive, both as a filmmaker and as a human being. And some people are too vulnerable, so they get crushed along the way, and those are the ones you should care for and support, you know, both artists and human beings. And I think I've had enough muscular growth along the way to keep going and that's been the one thing that i'm kind of happy about
0: but a part of that is going through the process that was joe kim drear i'm san Fragoso. this is talk easy welcome to the show Joachim Trier is a staggering filmmaker. In fact, in all the episodes we've done with directors, I don't think I've ever described someone that way. But there's something distinct about Trier's work. It's melancholic and potent. Its dramatic tensions go for the jugular and end up piercing your heart. The Norwegian talent started early in Oslo, Norway, where he grew up with supportive parents, including his sound technician father named Jacob. Trier has a fairly clear trajectory. It's something we chart in the episode you're about to hear. But what we also get into is his body of work, which started with Reprise, then Oslo August 31st, then Louder Than Bombs, and most recently Thelma. What's impressive about his movies is that each of those are their own movie. He's not interested in doing the same shit again and again. I think that's probably what's so painful for him, and he describes that pin in the episode, is that each project is a new one. It very much feels like he's pressing the reset button and getting behind the camera. Over the past few years, Trier and I have had a few different conversations depending on which film is about to come out. I wouldn't describe our relationship as friendship, because the only time I see him and talk to him is in the context of an interview, But there is something to be said about this kind of relationship, one that on the outset appears to be transactional, and yet within the dialogue itself feels very personal. Anyway, despite having had many interviews with him in the past, there's always something new and interesting and more to talk about. I actually don't think we've sat down for this long before, so we cover new ground that we haven't in the past. Even now, there's something fresh and interesting to talk about. If you can this week or the next, I definitely encourage you to go out and support Trier and his new film, Thelma. It's put out by The Orchard. It's in limited release right now, but if people keep seeing it, it will expand to more and more cities across the country. It is the movie worth your support. Now, finally, here is Joe Kim Trier. Yeah, you sound good. You sound good. How are you feeling these days? I'm okay, actually. It's been slightly exhausting. By the way, nothing's better than someone saying I'm okay, actually.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, because <laughs> no, no, because it's a counterpoint to what I'm going through a little bit. But well, uh... what's that? No, I mean, I shouldn't be complaining. It's I'm on the road with mm-hmm. Thelma, and it's fun to screen the film and meet journalists. But it's just the fact that I've been going from. Sweden to Denmark to the UK to Paris to New York back to New York back to Paris back to you know I'm kind of uh, traveling at the moment yeah and uh, that's fun at the outset but I've, I've done a lot of interviews
0: right I mean I feel like y- the interviews have exhausted every possible generic question that could be asked towards you
2: maybe but we're gonna dig deep and find that one thing I haven't talked about right
0: yeah well this is something we've done a couple times yeah and um at the end of it, you're always like, "I don't know if that made any fucking sense." I think you're an idiot. I don't know what <laughs> with you. That I've never said. So. You always say this to me. I have it on a... Re- no, I'm kidding.
2: No, I never thought you were an idiot. I think it's 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 fun to try to explore a new angle on something. And a part of when making a film, which is so important to remember, is that everyone sees the poster, the trailer, they hear a pitch, they see the director on stage at a Q&A, and A, and we're all you know, pretending that we know what we're doing. But as filmmakers, I find, at least in my case, that you create something and part of it is exploring and figuring out something and you're lost and you're fumbling in the dark and you don't really know. And you make all these narratives and you tell everyone, like, this is the film we're making or then it changes a bit and you don't really know. And then when it's done... You're, You're asked to answer everything. Yeah, but then also you learn. And you actually, the questions lead you to understand what you've done and you meet people. And that's the kind of upside of the whole process of touring is that you meet people that maybe have taken what you've done to heart. And even your previous work continues to be illuminated by people who, you know, right now people mention, you know, oh, it's great to talk to you about Thelma, but I would just want to mention that this and, or that thing about louder than bombs. And I would mm-hmm. learn more about that as well, you know?
0: Right. Well, people are combing through your filmography. Yeah, believe it or not, I
2: actually have a filmography. I've made
0: four films. You've made four and three shorts. True. I wanted to start with this movie, to me, the newest one, seems very much about, or part of it is about how restrictive religion can be and, and how your parents sometimes dictate your life based on a sort of religious doctrine. Did you have any of that growing up in Oslo? No,
2: I didn't. I I come from a very atheistic household sort it of. It was atheistic. Yeah, completely. Very Norway's a very secular country really, usually at least in the cities, but it, there's a big divide between parts of sort of rural Norway and urban life. Like in America, I think you have that divide too to a certain extent. Um so I didn't, but and I think ultimately the religious part to me was more of a narrative backdrop, but then it became interesting when I went to a lot of these I explored a bit of these charismatic Christian environments and mm. I went to like an evening with the actress actually. I remember this one time, Eileen Harbone and myself went to, uh, and they were like singing, uh, you know what Hillsong is? That's like a, it sounds, without being an asshole, it sounds a little bit like.
0: You can be an asshole on here.
2: Okay, like Bad Pearl Jam with Christian lyrics. <laughs> It has kind of a weird retro 90s feeling to it.
0: That's most of Christian alt rock.
2: So that's it, exactly. And they were singing, but the kids were wearing vans and they were going on their knees and like, hallelujah. And it was very, I was like, yeah, cool. You know, they're happy. It's great. And I asked the, the lady who's a, a, a sort of a priest there to, so, so all these kids here, a couple of hundreds of them, you know, uh, where, where do you guys stand on on sort of gay rights and, and abortion and stuff? And she went like... Uh, well, when it comes to that stuff, we're kind of conservative, I guess. <laughs> and I thought, fuck, this is terrible. Like, and I was looking at these kids, and I was thinking, under what conditions are some of these kids uh, letting themselves be accepted? You know, mm. what are the what is the context for that? What's allowed in this room? You know, it's quite restrictive, and it's restrictive towards types of people that I have many friends and, and love. You know, so it's kind of ah. It made me realize as I was exploring the story that there was a subject there as well, not maybe about attacking personal faith, but the concept of repression through the structuring of religion,
0: misuse Mm -hmm. of religion, you know? Complete misuse. But it also, you're describing what sounds to me to be a very American problem. Do you remember it? Do you remember your upbringing or childhood in, in Oslo to be restrictive or society? saying you can't be this, you can't do that? Society,
2: certainly. Uh, not my family. But any family have conditions under which you are loved, but they're not necessarily conscious. And I think we all go through in the process from our parents. I think my parents have always been very loving and accepting and it's been a big space, but there's still unconscious stuff at play in any family about, you know, probably values mm-hmm. that that's natural, it's human, like values that are, this is better than this, you know. But I was also in, in terms of society, yeah, I, I grew up skateboarding in a day and age where that was illegal in Norway, you know, it's right. just one example. It and, was illegal? Yeah, 1979 till 1989 <laughs> in Norway. It's one of the two countries in the world. The other was Iran, and at that moment, I think like women weren't allowed to ride bicycles, you know. So that says something. And I, so Norway uh, had a big, big uh, new law that was going to protect kids from dangerous toys, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, a Chinese teddy bear that would catch fire by itself or something. And um skateboard by mistake was included in that law as a dangerous toy. It so. was a typo or something, or yeah, no, no, it's just that some people defined it as such and and therefore it became uh, illegal
0: not only were you skateboarding but you were making skateboard videos and shorts right
2: that's yeah, true yeah, yeah skateboard to videos. me
0: when I read that I was like oh you're like the Norwegian Spike Jones
2: <laughs> I would take that as a compliment I think he's very very gifted and it's a very a great filmmaker um, yeah, I guess well, well, skateboarding was kind of exciting. It was subcultural. All the freaks were the skateboarders. You know, we've listened to the kind of weird underground music, uh, SST records, you know, like Bad Brains and Dinosaur Jr. and The
0: Descendants. Yeah. Would you call yourself a freak at that time? No,
2: I wouldn't. Not at all. Really. I felt cool as hell skateboarding. <laughs> but it, But it was, I realized that we weren't so popular with the girls when we were wearing baggy jeans that were like, like a tent baggy, Mm. you know, like they were like ridiculously baggy. You could fit another
0: person in there. uh, Three at
2: least, you know, it's ridiculous. (laughs) But, but, you know, so we weren't, we were kind of at least taking the position of a subcultural outsider, but we did it as a group and it felt like we had someone to connect with, you know.
0: Do you remember making work back then at that age and then being conscious of you perhaps pursuing a certain art form? Or was it just... Ah, here are my friends. I have free time. Let me just do this. I think it's more the latter, actually. I think
2: it's the um I think it was just fun, but I was always very ambitious. I wanted to to be good at things, and it mm. felt good to learn a new skateboard trick every day. yeah, and it felt good after a while to find a camera angle and to film that trick and it felt good to cut it together, and put on a piece of music and show it to all your friends, which is still how I approach my movies now. Right. Just I want to show someone something that I care about. And now it's not someone jumping down a staircase doing a 360 ollie or something, you know, but it's, I guess, more complicated human stuff.
0: Ambition is something, I think, in every interview we've done, it comes up at least once. Yeah, And I've always been very impressed by... How you identified your ambition pretty early on mm. did your friends admire you for that or did they find it annoying probably both uh, <laughs> but the thing is as a skater
2: we were all ambitious we all but the ambition wasn't about being better than someone else it wasn't like a sport like that it was about bettering ourselves like showing off a cool trick to someone. And then that the person was like, damn, I got to come up with something even better. And that's kind of dialectical, friendly ambition. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't about gaining power over someone or something. right? But no, that ambitious thing, damn, yeah, why is that? And why have I made a film about a young woman who feels that she needs to be perfect and have control all the time to love herself? You know, I, I think there's something at play there that goes much deeper in some of us about why we feel we need to do something that's seemingly or seems important to feel valued. Um, mm. and that's something I've been working on a lot. And I also try to find energy elsewhere than in just that idea of of showing off or something. After a while you run dry, you know, that's not an energy where you'll ever become quite happy. And you need to be inspired creatively. You also need
0: joy and, and fun. Mm. Are you someone who looks at your body at work and thinks, oh, okay, I've made... Stuff of value, or are you particularly critical?
2: Again, it's. I'm sorry for giving you these double answers all the time, but that's how the truth functions. I guess it's always. It's I not, love when you do this. It's actually. not not one thing. Yes and no is the answer. I mean, uh, I'm very very proud of the collaborations and the films have clearly, when I talk to other people, meant something to others. Right. Not necessarily to everyone in the world. I, I, you know, it's still like little groups of people here and there that see my movies, but. Enough to, that it feels worthwhile and valuable, and I can I can have moments of big pride. I can even have moments, and this is embarrassing to to admit to, when yeah. certain people are dismissive of, let's say, in America there were a few critics who didn't understand louder than bombs, mm-hmm. and then I see them embracing something that's just very conventional. I'm like, fuck you, who did a voiceover like that? I flaunted that trick for you, and and who did something where it's about grief in a family, but it's also about how we perceive conflict photography in our society today like who's done that you know fuck Mm. you like i can get angry like that and pride and it's kind of pride but i think that's good yeah it is but it's also very shameful because then you start really yeah but it's honest yeah i know i know but but this is difficult to talk about but but then i also have the other moments when i feel particularly while working i feel very and that's the that's the i don't feel great about my work moment you know i I, during the process (laughs) i feel terrible sometimes really i feel every film i've done i I feel like I've failed at, so, at several points during the process, like really. And then I try to get back up and we continue. And there's a great moment again, when we feel we succeed with something, but it's um, we were fortunate enough to be invited out to AFI last night to, mm-hmm. to meet the students. That was great fun. And they saw Thelma and, and I was on stage with Eskil, my co-writer and old friend, you know, and, right. and it was weird because we were suddenly asked all these personal questions about our our, our work process and, and Eskil, said that every time Joachim comes off set, because he's not on set, obviously, and we write together and I go and shoot it. And and every Joachim comes off set there, he always calls me and says, and I don't remember that I've done this every time, but he says so. Uh, And I call Eskil supposedly and say that I failed and I fucked up the film and it's not going to work, and that Eskil last time I remember doing that was with Thelman, and and he said, um, well, you know, you say this every time, and I, I said, well, one day I'll be right, you know. <laughs> and you know, every time when you start editing something, you feel like an idiot because you're exhausted from the shoot and it's so and, and then also when I finish the film, I don't watch them again. You know, I have this ritual when the when I do the premiere in Oslo, which is usually after the world premiere at some festival, I I gather all my friends, all the colleagues, as many people as possible that worked on the film mm-hmm. and I seat with them and I do my speech of gratitude towards the team and the actors, and I end by saying this is the last time I'll watch this movie, and I'm doing it with you. And it creates this kind of moment of, and, and it's true, except for with reprise that I want have watched once more. But but the, all the others, I, I don't I don't want to go back to them. I'm done with them.
0: Mm-hmm. You've so I depend on. on
2: you guys. I depend on other people to understand what the hell they mean, possibly.
0: Well, don't don't depend on me. You really shouldn't do that. <laughs> That's a terrible idea. Were you this critical of yourself when you moved? I think you moved away from home around what twenty twenty one, and you go to college. You go to two different schools right yes from uh, 95 to 96 mm-hmm. when you're making work at that age mm. were you doubting yourself then or did you have confidence i
2: guess weirdly enough i had confidence because i i grew up with a camera in my hand from when i was a child i was doing animation films my dad stop motion before i could write and i was i was even Your father in, was a sound technician? A sound designer, exactly. Um, and uh, and I, I, I filmed with video cameras very early. He got hold of them because he, he could borrow them from a film set or something. They had them, you know, for something. And so I've always felt quite confident about the breakdown of something. Like mm-hmm. if someone says, okay, you gotta, you have to film a situation like this, I, I can in a second come up with an idea of the way I want to look at that. And then I, sometimes I take a moment and I have a second thought and I get a better idea, but I, that's very instinctive with me. And so what's not easy for me is to write. Words are difficult for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I going to film school, I was very much like, you know, I I, I wanted to do things that were just sort of visually driven and I could kind of just write down my shots almost and and go from there. That's That was, I felt confident, but I felt very, very unsure of myself in terms of like how to write dialogue with words and how to create a script and stuff. That was a much more complicated process.
0: Well, it seems helpful that you have a writing partner then.
2: Very much so. And Eskel has been tremendously important in, in me He's gaining great confidence. I mean, I mean, He's oh, a He I, is. I
0: think there were two things I wanted to bring up when you were talking about that story. One is that his film, I think it was Blind, that was called, really did not get enough attention when that came out. And I, I thought that was maybe one of the best films of the year. And secondly... I think they're connected in a way when Louder Than Bombs came out that was what two years ago I do remember the reviews being especially hard in a way that I don't think any of your other films have been panned in that way true and I was wondering what I mean it was confounding to me but both of those films were doing not the same thing but they both had different visual tricks and and stuff with voiceover especially that it almost feels like folks weren't ready for that
1: If you ever think about mom. If you ever think about the that car accident. Why? They know what really happened, right? Jonah does. But Conrad, well, he was 12. Hey, it's me. So, what are you doing? I'm with Kenneth and some others. Oh, okay. He's not doing that well. I don't, I don't think you should tell him. Don't you think he deserves to know the truth?
0: The truth? What is the truth?
2: Well, the weird thing is that there was sort of an, an after wave with Louder, at least in Europe, when a lot of people embraced it. And it got some, some, like in France and Mexico, some places embraced it more. And it won a lot of awards suddenly, and also now I'm meeting a lot of people who like that film. So it became kind of the underdog darling for a few people. So it wasn't all bad, but no, you're right. Not. What happened was this, is weird. So this is the flip side of being an auteur, whatever you call it. You know, it's
0: you hate that term.
2: No, 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 it's great. I mean, you know, it's like then you're allowed to be a band and people follow you. You know, I don't have people making T-shirts yet, but you know what I'm saying? It's kind of this. Oh, yeah, okay. You know, it's it's wonderful to be able to speak to people or groups over time with several films. So that's yeah. that to me is a tour. It means that we're a bunch of a gang making some films, but the people say, oh, we'll watch the next one by this gang. You know, that's cool. So that's good. But the flip side to that, I guess, is that we we're making the first, so we we're making two films in, in Norway, Reprise, Oslo, August 31st, and they become kind of quite internationally recognized by critics. Mm. Uh, and so people start subscribing to an idea of who we should be. And we want to do something else. So we want to make an American film. And in some ways, and Bombs* is my most personal film, but no, it's perceived as less personal, more generic, more because it has American actors yeah, and you're doing yeah. English. Yeah, it's in English and it's in New York and it's as if I'm not allowed to do that. And you know, fair enough. That well, if people feel that, that what can I say? But I know that it came from a very personal place and that we formally really tried a few things we hadn't done before. And the same with *Thelma*, now that's that's uh, *Touchwood* received some good attention and we've had good reviews uh, in several countries but there's also this kind of I don't know some people are like oh it's less personal because it's uh, it's a genre film and stuff and really Can, can't we as filmmakers with mood and visuals and and the abstract elements of cinema and the timing of it all that stuff is also human expression mm. you don't I don't have to do Films with dudes in wearing Vans shoes and kind of college jackets or something that looked like (laughs) me to be personal. So I'm a little bit confused by that sometimes. But for Thelma, it's actually been okay. I think it's people allowing me to take a leap with this one. So far, so good at least.
0: Mm. It's interesting because you're describing a dynamic in which the press and the audience that watches your movies are trying to dictate what you make. And what you're telling me is that you're saying, no, that's not going to happen. And I'm uninterested in letting them dictate.
2: Yeah, you have to. I mean, I know that in France, like some people in America want me to do reprise over and over. And some people in France want me to do Oslo August 31st over and over. And mm-hmm. I've done those films. I'm very happy about it. Great, move on, you know. <laughs> uh, and I hope that... I, I I, remember, I'll give an example. I remember One Car Away became a smash hit as a kind of the coolest new flavor of cinema in the late 90s, mid-late 90s. Chunking Express, Fallen Angels, and then Happy Together. And they were somehow aesthetically felt like a development of a style. And they were different films, but there was a kind of a development of a new style. He was cr- shooting a Chris Doyle and, and commercials started looking like that and everyone wanted to kind of do the one car way style and you know he was he was like the hippest kind of post tarantino director in the world and i remember that moment when like wow this guy has peaked probably and then he did in the mood for love which was such a different style and it felt like yeah he nailed it again with something new and you were like rooting for him because you, you're feeling the exhaustion of that kind of reverse stock celluloid look that he was doing. And, right. and you felt it's become so beautiful, but we, we've we seen this now. Where are you going to go? And he went somewhere else. That's great. And then when you watch years later, Grandmaster, which is a brilliant film. right? It's really, really amazing. An allegory of the death of cinema, the way I interpret it, but it's beautiful. And uh, again, he's doing Kung Fu, but he's doing it in a, like a, he's just a great filmmaker, you know? So, I'm inspired by that. And I, I, uh, I think it's important that, that, that you also, you're also responsible to move forward creatively towards yourself and towards the audience.
0: Mm. Do you think you have? I hope.
2: I don't know. That's a further to judge. I did some new stuff with Thelma. I shot CinemaScope, shot digital for the first time, and I used 200 CGI shots to tell a personal story. I hadn't done that before.
0: Right. Yeah, I noticed that was definitely different from Oslo. Hmm. Uh, I don't remember the CGI shots in Oslo
2: (laughs) Exactly, couldn't afford them
0: No, you could have done some CGI heroin shots in Oslo That would have been great Thank you, no, but I had such a
2: great actor in Anders Danielson Lee and he shot up a real syringe in his arm for real, no Mm -hmm. heroin though but, Mm. uh, you know, so we didn't need the effects
0: I think, you know, I don't want to harp on that movie because we've talked about it a few different times and everyone I'm sure has talked to you about it But I do have this distinct memory of it played Ebert Fest. Mm -hmm. I I think you were there for that. I was, I was, yeah. I had not met you at the time. I was like 14. And I remember going into it thinking, oh, I don't know if I want to watch this. This seems like a lot. I'm tired. I'd stayed up late the night before. Like, I I think I'm just going to go eat lunch. And then I was like, no, I'll try it. And... It was unquestionably the best film I saw there and of that year, and I'm still adamant that it's one of the best films of the past 20 years. Thank you. And I know that's strange for you to hear, or maybe it's it's odd because you've made other films since, and you're going to make more films after. I don't want to pin you to that. But I do want to ask you, when you finished it, Did you call Eskil and say, I I fucked this one up?
2: Yeah, I did. I even called my mother. I remember like in the... But listen, dude, I mean, there's something that happens throughout editing too. I think if you saw the first cut of all my films, you would kind of agree with me (laughs) that they completely didn't work at that time. Um, But that's the process, you know. And uh, the whole thing is it's about subjective re kind of you got to change your perspective you got to readjust yourself to what the discrepancy between what you thought you were going to do and what you actually did and so i think as a director i think a part of you're so driven by the notion of nailing and fighting for the moments the beats the shots the places the the character moments you know based on some sort of sense of yearning for a vision that far back kind of manifested itself in your brain and you're trying to be process oriented and you're trying to let it happen in unusual ways and the old the, the more mature I get as a director the more I'm able to appreciate the unexpected but still you're fighting and fighting and fighting and at the end of the day you lost so many of your intentional battles but then again you hopefully won some or discovered some new things you hadn't expected and you got to re your perspective got to go there, you know, that's tough.
0: Yeah, you can't be stuck on the battles you thought you had to win. No, but but you're also doomed to have to believe in those battles while you're doing them.
2: Yeah, It's but, like, you know, the relationship you fought for for three, four years and then finally broke apart and you couldn't have broken up three years sooner. You had to go through that terrible struggle and actually that became an important part of your life.
0: Yeah. In the moment you wish it could just end, you can just move on. Especially with love, it seems that, you know, it's a losing game,
2: I think. Yeah, it's, it's it goes up and down, I guess.
1: Huh? Yeah. It's, uh, are, you, are you married now?
2: <laughs> I'm not married. I, I live with someone. You live with yeah, someone. And she's. We've been together for a couple of years. And I usually never talk about private stuff, but I'll make a quick exception here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, I'm still figuring out myself, I'll be honest, of balancing falling in love and working is that hard for you yeah sure that's that's
2: the it's been tricky from the beginning but the weird thing is that the kind of workaholic personality that most of us that make films have it also teaches us that we have quite a big capacity to do a lot of things at the same time Mm. so there is space for many things in life And as long as you find a partner that accepts that it's kind of not an even time every day, but you have maybe two months that's crazy and then a couple of months that's easier, then, you know, I'm I'm very optimistic about people like us having relationships. (laughs) But I will say this, if you're interested in that dichotomy, which seems like we both are of love versus the mission of a purpose of our work, Mm. you should read a wonderful short story by Henry James, maybe one of the greatest storytellers of all time. It's called Lesson of the Master. And it's uh, written in 1888 or something, I think, like late 1880s. And it's just a remarkable story of a young writer who meets his big hero, a wonderful author who has by that time started writing less good, literature and you followed them over a period of few years and it's a it's a just the best tale about this impossible thing that we're talking about life mm. or love versus work
0: yeah okay lesson from the master a
2: lesson the, the lesson of the master by henry james
0: i can find that yeah it's it's it, it does it get easier
2: I think now so. Now I'm really petitioning myself. as like the young person asking. No, no, no that's okay. I, and I'm certainly not an expert to answer you, but does it get easier? Yeah, I think you learn. I think yeah, life has an automatic therapeutical thing where if you repeat the same mistake enough times and it's painful enough, unless you're really, really a, a masochist, then maybe you learn and you make better choices. That's That's what we got. But it's important to let yourself have time to... Grieve and think. So if a relationship falls apart, to just jump into something new or run into work. I mean, maybe it's important to, to grieve for your whole system to kind of prime itself for better solutions. Mm-hmm. That would but
0: be my only advice. I, I think that's good advice. In regards to advice, what do you wish you could tell yourself as a young creative person, because you, you know, in in the early two thousand, you made these three short films. I think it was from two thousand to two thousand three. You leave college around ninety six. I don't know what you do between that time, but probably no. Right.
2: But the thing is, I went to the European F- Film College from ninety five to ninety six. Then I go to the National Film School, which is a really hardcore sort of elite film school in in London, outside London in Um For three years, from '98 till 2001, Mm. so that's when I make those films. I make one, the last one of the three you're mentioning, Proctor, the year after I leave school.
0: Mm. What do you wish you knew back then that you know now?
2: So the the idea is that I, if I had a conversation with myself back then, now I would ruin the same naivete that I needed to work six years on reprise and believe in in all the stuff that I am now don't believe so much in anymore. And that's kind of a, I think you need that crazy fuel to get through your first film. Let me say you that you're going to kind of make the best film in the world history and you're going to, you know, win the Pandora and you, everyone's going to say, wow, he invented a new m- way to make movies. Like all that bullshit that you kind of dream of, or that has such great energy. And you don't want to take that away by by sharing the kind of cynicism. This is, this is the, the, what you learn as a creative person, I think, is very analog or very uh, parallel to what you learn in life is that while you're losing hope and faith and and, and stuff in one way because you have seen that the world is not as beautiful and marvelous in many ways that you expect you also grow muscles along the way to cope with it and if that balance is okay in your life you'll survive both as a filmmaker and as a human being and some people are too vulnerable so they get crushed along the way and those are the ones you should care for and support you know both artists and human beings and I think I've had enough muscular growth along the way to keep going and that's been the one thing that I'm kind of happy about it. But a part of that is going through the process. Not the quote changes by David Bowie, but the kids are immune to your consultations. They're well aware of what they're going through, you know, and <laughs> and you got to kind of, I don't know, what, what could I have told myself? Well, I don't know, man, fuck it. You got to do it your own way along the way. I, I don't know. I, I think all the stuff you learn, you know, you get exhausted, you learn to eat better, you get... You, you fight more for your sleep the next time around, and you know, I, I know. All the practical shit about directing, you figure it out, you know, if you keep going.
1: Mm.
0: Do you think you're running low on crazy fuel? <sighs> yeah,
2: it's always the danger, going back to the lesson of the master, you know. You can get comfortable, but I guess I, I don't feel so comfortable. And I, (laughs) so I guess I got something still to do. But when when I'm talking about the stuff that, that mustn't make you cynical is the fact that if a critic loves you, they might also hate you later on. If festival digs you or supports you, maybe, maybe they won't forever. Some of your collaborators will disappoint you. Others will surprise you. I mean, you know, all the, all the. um,
0: Everything else but yourself is temporary. It could go away. Just, we could also go away, but especially other people and what they want. Their desires are finicky. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But uh, that abstract
2: size, that abstract thing of an audience, which could change and grow and diminish and grow back again—you know—hopefully, it's it's. Um, you got to have faith that you can meet someone through the particularities of making movies. But that is a language on its own and it's not your social life. It's not that stuff you can tell friends or or other people, which is also a wonderful way of communicating, but it's beyond that. It's something more. It's something like uh, a little time capsule of something that you really, really worked hard on and then you let it go. And That's kind of cool, you know, And and that in itself is the kick. And I'm trying to keep focus on that. Because the whole the, the strategies of careers and all that stuff, I really care about it, of course. Because I'm really concerned with getting to make more movies. At the end of the day, success is all about getting being allowed to do the next one. Mm. So you want success, of course. You want to continue. You want to be perceived in a way where distributors say, "Yeah, we'll buy this person's film." You know, but at the same time, it's the kick of making it. Um, which is the kind of perversity of it because half the time you feel you're failing.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, that's when you feel worse is when you're on set, it seems. Yeah, yeah. No, that's not true. Actually, on set, I'm pretty happy a lot of the time. It's,
2: it's after. It's after. It's when okay. I'm done. No, I'm, I mean, this is the thing. I like shooting. I love the actors. Mm. I, I dig hanging out on set with and getting shots done. Every time you do a shot that you enjoy or, or you feel good about it, and that's not every day, but, you know, that that's a, that's great. That's mm. the
0: coolest. That's a wild pendulum in terms of feeling very happy with the actors. Mm. And then within a day, within that same day, leaving set and feeling like I need to call my writing partner and tell him how awful I feel.
2: Yeah. 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 yeah it's, it's a crazy, it's a self imposed bipolar disease almost. <laughs> <laughs> not not to be flippant about it and laugh at that, but you know, it's, it's a very roller coastery. I've never of.
0: heard it described that way, but it's, that's really great.
2: It's kind of, yeah, I know it's, it's, it's a little bit mad, but
0: what can I say? I mean,
2: I, I think about this thing when I meet young filmmakers as well. It's like, um, and I don't mean to be cynical, but I sometimes, I wish for everyone to become filmmakers because I think it's a cool thing. We need a variation of voices and, and different types of people expressing themselves with movies. But, but it, it's a little bit like ballet dancers or war photographers or brain surgeons or it's like certain jobs people are a little bit freak to to do it. You got to have like some special thing to do it. And with filmmaking, it's so important to me that I would really want to fight for different types of people to be able to do films. Mm. So it's very important that we have good producers that help different types of personalities express themselves as directors. I think this is about uh, gender, ethnicity, different cultural voices that, that we just make sure we we create possibilities for people of different types of personalities to become filmmakers. And this is difficult because at one level you want it to be meritocratic. You want people to really fucking desire it and be so crazy and be so driven Mm. that they will push themselves through this stupid machine and create something unique. But on the other hand, you also need to to support unique voices. And I, I saw a documentary the other day that really moved me and it's called The Art Life about David Lynch. And it actually occurred to me that he's obviously one of the most unique voices in cinematic history, but it just, from that documentary, it felt like there were like some really, really vulnerable, important, decisive moments where certain people in his life had actually just stepped up and kind of saved him or allowed him to be who he was and to make movies. And we got to kind of spread the word, you know, hadn't those individuals supported David Lynch, then maybe we would have had a less interesting world to live in. Mm. So that's important that we're kind of looking out. And that can be about critics, people that let you get into a school, producers that give you a shot and trust you to really be who you are and not to do what they want you to do necessarily. You know, So that that at the moment, that precious space of cinema, we need to really protect right now.
0: Something like a David Lynch or or you're talking about diverse voices, for the weirdness factor, the thing that's a little bit different about someone, I often think it's about someone being vulnerable enough to be who they are hmm. and throw whoever they are on the screen in some way. Obviously it's fiction and it's, it's cinematic and, and mythologized, but you were talking about being vulnerable earlier and how you have vulnerable friends and you need to support them. Do you see yourself as a vulnerable filmmaker?
2: Yes and no, again, on one level, I guess I am trying to sustain emotionality and uncertainty in myself and try to accept it and to console myself with the fact that I'm I'm probably a bit neurotic and and, and worried about things and that draw is a driving force and it makes me also concerned with things and those concerns create stories and characters. Definitely so, neurotic. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: so so you know
2: you got that element and that 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 that's what creativity for me at least stems from is that concern and care and kind of worry about things that you don't let it go, you keep grinding over things and out of that comes stories and characters and stuff. Mm. That's one thing. But I also think I'm fairly robust in terms of... I'm not scared of conflict and I'm not scared about battles and kind of taking on stuff and fighting through and and being in a group of people. I'm a, I think I trust my collaborators quite a lot and, and I know that they're people I admire, so I kind of I dig being a part of a gang of people. Mm. Men and women who fight together for this kind of film we're doing together. And I, I and I think that makes me robust as well, that I'm able to connect with people. So so I, I don't feel vulnerable in the sense that I'm I'm so frail that I kind of need special care. I, I can I can take a battle and I can I can fight for my vision in a way. And I think that element I, I'm I'm kind of lucky that I have that. I think some of that also comes from skateboarding. I've broken both my arms, my leg and my ribs, and I've had three concussions. I once had a concussion so that I saw CinemaScope for like a couple of hours. It was like really worried. They were worried I was going to go blind, but it actually popped back in, you know, mm. after a while. But so I'm not doing this as a sort of braggy look at my scars kind of thing, but I think I, I've i been okay about slamming, you know, falling down and getting back up. And I trained that quite hard. So I, I also have that robustness. But the, the clue is, I guess, with films to not get cynical and technical because the machine and the pressure is so big, so you lose that other vulnerability that you need to be, to, to be with actors. Actors, for example, are the most crazy impressive people to sustain emotions that all your system, your brain, your rationality will try to suppress because you feel sad, you cry, And most of the time it ends after 20 minutes. But the Mm. actor might have to keep that emotion open for eight hours while shooting. And that's that's so impressive.
0: Yeah, it's impressive. We have to uh, go. So I have one last question for you. Speaking of actors and characters in your latest film, you said this earlier, that she's striving for perfectionism. Are you still fighting for that in yourself? Yeah,
2: because, you know, making... A movie for me is a combination of several things. Part of it is to see the world as it is beyond the everyday in a more poetic, nuanced, detailed way where something that appears in front of you every day suddenly is given value through the way that it's seen in a film. So that's like, that's how it is energy, right? But on the other hand, there's also the formal aesthetic side of me that wants to make something very beautiful, like an object, so that someone will feel a musical rhythmicality, some colors, a way of tracking towards a face or a filming of a space that's just like, wow, that was beautiful and lush. It lifts you and it's just pure beauty without shame, without all that kind of, oh, this has to have a purpose, you know, that's just aesthetical <laughs> kick of flaunting something, you know, and 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 that's really hard. And so perfectionism, I think, is to try to combine these things and to make it kind of work so that it creates an emotion or themes or something. So if that's perfectionism, sure. But I don't really believe that it's sort of a technical achievement of perfectionism ultimately. It's, mm-hmm. It has to be something else.
0: I think you've made it work.
2: Well, thank you for your faith. It's always nice to talk to you because you, I think you're a real talent. It's all about listening because the clue is that you, when you ask questions and you sit and look at me and the listeners won't know it actually, you make me feel like what I say matter to you. And that's the whole clue.
0: It does matter. No, no, but I feel
2: it. I feel it. And, and you know, <laughs> you know then, then, then I open up. You know, so that's a, that's a talent. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Thank uh, you. And thank you
0: for caring about my movies. Of course, Joe Kim. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: It's always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Special thanks this week to Katie Joe, Ash and Sarah Tarani at MPRM. Without them or their office space, this episode does not happen. As I said at the top, you can see Thelma in theaters now. If you do so early, then it will expand to more cities across the country. For more info about Trier's body of work, including Oslo, August 31st, Reprise, Louder Than Bombs, be sure to visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, you'd probably enjoy past conversations with directors like Miguel Arteta, Kelly Reichardt, Janiksa Bravo. You can find all those in the archive on iTunes and SoundCloud, and, of course, our website. As always, our show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, social media by Max Shipp, our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week with Rory Scoville. So
1: long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress.